If you're just joining us, we have been working this uh, winter quarter through uh, what I'm hoping you're discovering is a pretty big question uh, that every uh, epoch of the church in whatever history it finds itself has to work through, and that is, what does it mean for us to be the church in the world in which we live? How are we to act as the church in the world? Uh, We began our series by me trying to convince you that there is, uh, for every Christian, a struggle that they have to understand their primary identity as one of the church, the called out ones, the ones who are specifically to be that place where heaven and earth meet. Uh, In other words, our churches are supposed to be the place that look the most like what God is trying to do in the rest of the world, which is why we call what we do when we come to church worship, because that's what God is doing with the world, right? Uh, We pray it every uh, Sunday in the Lord's Prayer that God would make things on earth as they are in heaven. Well, what's it like in heaven? Well, everyone is worshiping. Everyone is living uh, in worship and praise to God. And so when we do that here in this place, we become the most heavenly looking spot on the planet. Does that make sense? So that's the church. But then we also discover that Jesus talks about this other entity called the kingdom. And the kingdom is the place where Jesus is Lord over, but that lordship has not necessarily come into full view. That is, when Jesus rose from the dead, he took his place of authority. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, he said at the very end of the book of Matthew. But we are called as his people to extend that lordship over every area of life. That's the kingdom. So we did two talks on that, and then the next week we talked about, well, okay, so Les, if, you know, if there's the church, there's the kingdom, which one am I a part of? Am I the church or am I the kingdom? And of course, the answer is both. But the question that I'm using to frame this discussion is what is the relationship to our identity as the people of God when we gather to that world out there where we're supposed to be extending Jesus' kingship? That's my big question. That's the question. If you've been wondering for him to get to the point, that was the point uh, right there. What does it look like for the called out people of God to go out and move into the world? Because people have answered that differently, especially in the last 200 years of American history. We said last week that for those who find themselves of a more liberal stripe, I'm using these words not necessarily in a political way, but more in an ecclesiastical way. The liberal type tends to get very excited about the kingdom of God and the work that's out there, but they lose the distinctiveness of the church in the process. In other words, the vital aspects of the gospel, the historicity of Jesus, his virgin birth, his literal bodily resurrection, those things kind of fall to the wayside. And what happens is is social action becomes first and foremost. I said last week we're there to be commended by recognizing that, yes, our lives in the church are supposed to have an impact on the world outside of of, of the church. But when they lose the distinctness of the church, they've got to be uh, um, challenged on that. But then we said there's a conservative approach to this whole question where for those who are longing to have the kingdom of God, they actually pull the kingdom of God back almost within the literal doors of the church. That is, the conservative approach oftentimes views the fact that the only really good things that God can and should do in the world need to be funneled through the doors of a church. And so the critique of that I tried to make last week is, is to simply ask the question, why? Why is it that anything that good that is done in the world necessarily needs to be overseen by a church session and by a church body or a church committee? That'll really get you thinking after a while when you see the kinds of exercises and the kinds of things that churches get into. Oftentimes, what's at the bottom of that thinking is a desire to sort of make the church as an institution, as an organization, if you will, become the only real storehouse for good that's done in the world. And I tried to pitch to you that God gives a measure of freedom to those people who leave the church and go to seek to bring about the nature of the kingdom in different ways. Conservatives oftentimes have trouble sort of seeing that there's different ways to approach and skin this cat. 
Then I tried to give you what I think is probably the most sound version of what we've got and sort of headed up by this old dude named Abraham Kuyper, who basically tried to say this, that the church is the impetus for the kingdom. It's the spark plug for the kingdom. In other words, we are to be coming here and being instructed, inspired, moved, if you will, by a sense of vision for the kingdom and then moving out through this sort of porous activity into the kingdom, into every area of life and bringing Jesus' lordship over every area of life. Therefore, the church is to be doing two things. Number one, she has to reclaim the things that really only she was given to do, like necessarily the authority over the preaching of the word. Um, I think there's a case to be made, and uh, I'm trying to say some provocative things today to generate questions because I think we're going to have a lot of time for today. Um, I think a, a church needs to ask a lot of questions about when something that's done outside of the, lo- of the local church should actually itself be brought underneath the church. In other words, we often talk about letting go of things that are not the church's business, but are we also going to reclaim the things that really are our exclusive business? This is what I think the parachurch movement really has to wrestle with in the years going forward, especially as our culture discovers more about the nature of the church. But not only does the church need to reclaim the things that are hers, but she needs to let go of stuff that she probably never should have been trying to do in the first place. And what are those things? Well, that's a great question, and you can get in a lot of fights about that, so I won't do that to you this morning. Um, But I'm saying that that was the genius of this approach, that there are things that the church ought to reclaim for itself, and there are things that the church ought to let go of. And working through that in any given epoch of history is the point of the transformationalist view of this whole thing. I hope you heard me sort of slant at the fact that I feel the most comfortable in this particular place. But I will say that in the last couple hundred years, there have been a number of people that I thought have done this um, very well. And so for this week uh, and the next couple of weeks, I want to sort of focus on the contributions of uh, not old dead guys, but old living guys. Uh, These guys are still with us and writing great books and great articles. And I just think that we can't talk about Christ and culture without you being aware of some of these people. The first guy is a fellow by the name of Andy Crouch. Uh, Andy Crouch used to be one of the general editors for Christianity Today. I think he's running a think tank right now and writing some great books. The second guy is a guy named James Davidson Hunter. Uh, Dr. Hunter is a uh, sociology professor at the University of Virginia at UVA and has written a very important book that we'll talk about this morning. And then finally is uh, Tim Keller. I really don't think there's been a lot of people uh, in the evangelical American world that have done more to talk about Christ and culture than Tim Keller. Uh, having set up a ministry for 35 years in probably the, the most profound cultural center uh, in the world, New York City, uh, what he's done and what he's gleaned from that place, I'm going to make a case for you, is absolutely vital. To be dismissive of Tim Keller, I think, is, is, is bordering on moral irresponsibility. <laughs> and I say that because there are a lot of people who like, because Tim Keller has gotten popular, there are some people that don't like him because he's popular. And I believe that to be uh, uh, wildly immature. But we're going to save Tim for the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to talk about him for the next three weeks. Uh, But today we're going to focus more on uh, Andy Crouch and James Davidson Hunter's uh, wonderfully helpful books that uh, we're going to focus on today. And the first is Andy's book called Culture Making. He's written a couple books since, uh, since that time. But I would strongly recommend to you Culture Making for a very accessible version of this whole thing. In many ways, Andy is, 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 a, is a transformationalist. He kind of believes that the church ought to do the churchy things and the kingdom of God ought to be focused on kingdom things. But he begins his discussion with a question about what we mean when we say the culture. Because that's where we end up getting a little bugged by, don't we? You know, we spend a lot of time in our world thinking about the news and we watch the news and we get bothered about it. And we don't really know what we mean when we talk about culture. Well, what Andy wants to say is, is the culture is nothing more than what you make of the world. And he means that both specifically and he means it metaphorically. In other words, what he says is, is you really cannot understand who you are as a culture until you look at the goods that that culture creates or that it manufactures. 
He draws that idea from the very beginning of humankind's responsibility. In the Garden of Eden, mankind is instructed to go and to mind the world, to exercise dominion over the world, and find all the hidden capacities that are there. In other words, we are, according to Andy Crouch, makers by definition. We're creative. We want to make something of the world. We want to fashion things. Sometimes those things are material in nature. Sometimes they're immaterial in nature in the terms of fashioning the young minds of college students, if you find yourself as a college professor. But culture are those artifacts. Andy says, but there's a metaphorical way of speaking of it. In other words, there's oftentimes someone will look at you and they'll bring an article to you or a book or they'll see a a thing in the newspaper and be like, man, what do you make of this? What do they mean by that? You're not actually fashioning things. What you mean by that is, is how you come to understand that thing. What do you make of this? And Crouch is saying that culture is both of those. Culture is what we make of the world. And so what he says is, and I'll quote him here. I'm going to put a bunch of his quotes up here in just a minute, so I'm not reading to you the whole Sunday school. But he says, there is no such thing as the culture. And any attempt to talk about the culture, especially in terms of transforming the culture, is misled and misleading. Real culture making, not not to mention cultural transformation, begins with a decision about which cultural world we will attempt to make something of. In other words, what Crouch is saying is, oftentimes our worries about the culture are completely misunderstood. And we've not yet understood the world in which we live. Hold that thought for a second. And so therefore, he ends up offering what I think are a couple of things that are, that are huge. He talks vitally about the importance of acting locally. Crouch makes a very big deal about saying, stop worrying about this thing called the culture that's out there beyond your ability to make. Rather, look more at what is in front of you. The things that happen in your house. <laughs> the things that happen in, sorry, this is my mother. That really is who that was. It's hilarious. She's in church right now texting me. I love that. She'll, she'll love knowing that she got to be in Sunday school this morning too. Let her listen to the audio of it all. But his point is basically this. Uh, culture, if we worry about those things, misses the fact that there's something locally that you're missing. Um, and he's going to draw this out in a little bit more. But the, the beauty of what he's saying, I think, is it really forces us to think, Here, a lot of times we don't end up sort of changing the world by trying to get people to think differently about it. We change the world by acting differently in the context in which God has given us to act. Now hold that thought because I want to make a pitch to you that Oxford and Lafayette County come to the fore in this kind of discussion. Okay? And so therefore, he says, we've got to look at these cultural goods. And he says, we basically need to ask a handful of questions about the things that we, that we operate with. He says, number one, we need to ask, what does this cultural artifact, good, this thing that we've made, what does it assume about the way the world is? Secondly, what does this thing assume about the way the world should be? Thirdly, what does this thing make possible in the world? But then also, opposite, what does this thing make impossible in the world around us? And then finally, what forms of culture are created when we respond to this thing? Let's take an example. He spends about a chapter or so dealing with this in his book, Culture Making, where he talks about what happened at the beginning of Dwight D. Eisenhower's uh, second term in office in 1956. Eisenhower was the one who pushed the legislation to form the interstate system throughout America. Okay. Prior to that time, whenever you sort of traveled from one place to the other, kids, <laughs> you had to do so through very small, oftentimes very well put together two-lane roads. Some of you remember what it was like because for a large time, it took a long time for the interstate system to make it sort of into our sort of uh, neck of the woods. But how she encourages us to think, okay, there's something that we made. What would we say about the interstate system that made the world different? Because as you drove into a particular town, what happened? You stopped in on that town. You, uh, you, you, you sort of, uh, uh, um, did you patronize or patronize? You, you, you patronized them because you bought stuff there. That's right. Patronizing is to antagonize. Isn't that right? Okay, that's right. You, and, and you bought stuff from them, which gave them a livelihood. So there's a sense in which there was an assumption about the way the world is 
that valued the sense of progress. The 1950s, in many ways, could be viewed in that way. There's a lot of cultural hopefulness that's coming when people return from the war. And we've been able to do anything. Look at how we manufactured what Eisenhower called the sort of industrial military complex. So what can we do when we deal with our own domestic goods? Well, let's make mobility a value. Does that make sense? In other words, the idea of being able to get, this is, this is my business for the week. I have a meeting in Atlanta uh, on Tuesday morning at 8.30 till noon. But I will be able to leave my house tomorrow around lunchtime, get to the hotel by tomorrow evening, watch the national championship with my other area coordinator buddies, Lord willing, get up, make it to the, my meeting, be done at noon, and be back in my house really towards the end of dinner tomorrow, uh, tomorrow afternoon. That's a five and a half hour trip. <laughs> and I can do it never getting off four lane roads. I mean, when they, when they did Highway 9 between, between Pontotoc and, and um, um, what? Sherman. Sherman, yes. Like, that, was like, that was like the new heavens and the new earth. Like coming to bear on the world. You know, they finally finished uh, Interstate 22 in between Jasper and Birmingham. And just like, like praise coming up from people's cars as they drive on these new roads. But what does that suggest about what we value? There was a time in which that simply was not possible. I put, every year, bear with me, about 35,000 miles a year on my car. That's how much I drive, okay? Now, my life would not be possible were it not for the, 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 uh, the, um, the interstate system. It doesn't exist without it. So those are the possibilities that it created. But Crouch says you've got to realize that the interstate system also made some things impossible, it made impossible for smaller towns to be able to thrive on the traffic that was coming through and stopping there. Did you ever watch the Pixar movie Cars? That is exactly what the, what the show Cars is about. It's about how Route 66 began to suffer and decay when all of a sudden an interstate system not only created a lot more possibilities about getting from one place to the other easily, but it also made some impossibilities which means being able to survive in a small town with your own particular cultural goods in that regard. Do you see what Kraft is trying to get you to do? He's trying to say, look, what do the objects that we make mean about the world in which we're in? What does this object say and do about the world in which we live in? I don't think there's any greater cultural influence than a thing like this. And again, what we tend to want to do, and this is why I feel like I, I, I like Kraft so much, is we tend to want to say, well, that thing was good or that thing was bad. And the answer is, it's far more complicated than that. Have you ever found yourself sort of arguing and barking at the absurdity of technology in your world while you hold a small black device to your ear speaking to someone on the other side of the world? I'll tell you the problem today is technology. That's what's killing us. All the while living with the technology that made that conversation possible. In other words, you begin to feel that there's some contradictions inside of you when you are overly simplistic about cultural artifacts. Let me say that again, because that, that, was, that was a sentence that came up out of me that feels important. <laughs> and now I've got to remember what I said. When you are overly simplistic about the things in your world, what tends to happen is you become reactionary. And when you're reactionary, you don't think well. And we're not thinking well, we're actually reproducing things that are dangerous to the culture, which is exactly what Crouch goes to. Because he says, look, you have to understand that woven all through this question about the goods that we create, we have to understand power. That there are those in this world who are given the ability to make something of the world. They have lots of power. And then there are others who are oftentimes denied the ability because of the structures around them, to be able to influence their own world. And Kraut says, there is the cultural disparity right there. It is between power holders and people who are denied being power holders. There are those that have the ability to make something of their lives and those who have been denied the ability to make something of their lives because of the culture that was created by those in power. Does that make sense? It's a far more interesting question. <clears throat> that he asks. And so he ends up going into some, some fantastic quotes that I want to throw out there, uh, throw out there to you. Um, let me see if I'm going to go to this one here. Yes. 
And what he, what he ends up focusing on is, is there is not necessarily a value that the Bible's going to place on whether you are a power holder <clears throat> or whether you are a power wanter. In other words, whether you are a cultural elite, wealthy, white, upper middle class, or whether you are someone who is lacking of any kinds of those privilege, the Bible instructs you, the, the, both people in the same thing. He says, look, when elite people, the sort of people with all the power, use their privilege to create cultural goods that primarily serve other elites, that's nothing but the way of the world. Standard operating procedure. In other words, he says, look, those of you who actually have a measure of influence over your lives, look at what you're investing in. What are you building? What are you fashioning with your time and your efforts and your talents? If those particular things only serve to help other people with the same amount of power, I mean, you're just going with the flow. You're moving with the flow of life. You're moving against it. But he says, look, don't, it's not as if sort of Christians are valuing, therefore, the powerless, but even though they do in a little way. Bear with me. But he says, likewise, when the powerless cultivate and create culture that simply reinforces their oppression. Whoa. How are those without power reinforcing their oppression without bringing any real change in the horizons of possibility and impossibility? Or when those in desperate circumstances rise up against the powerful, simply creating new structures of power in their place, we rightly rightly recognize what is happening is business as usual. I think one of the great conversations going on within the African-American community is the attempt to decide who among their personal history in America, especially in civil rights, is going to be their patron saint. In other words, Martin Luther King had a fairly dramatic, different, dramatically different vision than what Malcolm X had. And they ended up becoming many of the figureheads. Martin Luther King sort of committed to his position of nonviolence. Malcolm X simply saying, um, uh, we've lived with that long enough, and it's not going to change without a violent overthrow. The question then becomes not, well, who was good and who was bad? The question becomes, what, what was what they did, did it reinforce their oppression? Did it overturn those things? Or did it simply just create new structures of power in their place that turned around and kept the cycle going? Wow. This will bake your noodle if you're not careful. He says, it's no surprise then to discover. This is where he starts looking and keeps you from getting cocky if you're, if you're rich and powerful or you're poor and, and lacking in it. He says, it's no surprise, for example, to discover that two-thirds of American philanthropy. You ever heard the statistics on American giving? No other country in the world that gives charitably like America gives charitably. <laughs> Until you realize that two-thirds of that philanthropy actually goes to institutions like museums and orchestras or churches that primarily serve the rich. Essentially, the wealthy underwriting their own cultural experiences with the benefit of a tax deduction. Ow. (laughs) Or that the futility of American urban life has given rise to misogynistic, nihilistic forms of music that simply underwrite broken horizons of masculinity and femininity with the alleged credibility of the street. Whoa. Whoa. Get this stuff that white people don't feel comfortable talking about. But is there a way for both rich and poor to react badly and begin to make cultural products that do nothing but oppress the, 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 reinforce the oppression? Man, and this is a fascinating conversation. I'm fascinated by it. You should be. Do one more. So the question is like, all right, Les, but what does God want us to do? I love this quote. He says, what God is doing in history, according to his own revelation, the pages of scripture and in Israel's history, culminating with Jesus Christ, what is he doing? He is at work lowering the high places and raising the low places. Look at this. So that all flesh, low and high, will see his glory together. The glory of the one who brings the possible out of the impossible, the one who raises the dead. What Crouch is saying is, is we have a God who focuses on a couple of things. We have a God who, number one, always seems to want to go back as you look in the pages of Scripture and, and, and bring about a massive togetherness of humanity. He longs for people to be together, leveled, as it were, at the foot of the throne. Not in terms of uniformity, 
but in a way of people using their diversity to serve one single end, and that is his glory. And that means that the call for the rich is to use their power to bring up the poor. And it's a call for the poor to use their longing for power in such a way that actually brings them up out of their oppression. God is constantly trying to bring about those particular influences. Secondly, over and over again, you find in Scripture that... uh, Let me go back through these uh, points right here. This is microscopic printing. Um, Talked about that. Um, Over and over again, we find... Uh, we, we find God using those things that are small things that the world never pays attention to. Crouch, notice, Crouch brings back that quote from, uh, from Zechariah where God says, look, don't, you, don't, you don't want to be those people who despise the day of small things. Over and over again, it's the tiniest little things that God's people did throughout the Old and New Testament that brought about extraordinary movements of God's grace. Extraordinary movements as he did. Um, but they did small little actions. They focused locally so therefore, what they do, Crouch encourages us to basically reduce our uninfluenceable stress. To get out of the conversation that are things that you have no power over. And frankly, the 24-hour news cycle has made that almost impossible. Almost impossible to not get stressed out and to spend emotional energy on things that are out there. And then finally, he brings us to understand the importance of institutions. Crouch does a great job of helping us realize that when institutions gain power over people, they take on certain ideas and forms of power that might not have anything to do with the salvation of each of those individuals. In other words, you can have everybody in a company that can be Christians, but because it's based on a series of rules and assumptions about what it is they're making of the world, they can actually bring oppression and pain to people. Every CEO ought to be asking these questions. Okay? Andy Crouch, culture making. That was my one that I want to spend the most time on this morning because I'm the most sort of uh, enamored of his uh, stuff. So read that book. That's a good one. Secondly, I want to look at, uh, boy, these are supposed to come in one time and they didn't. James Davidson Hunter, about 10 years ago, released this book, To Change the World, uh, and was a massive, massive book among sort of uh, uh, kind of intellectuals in uh, uh, evangelicalism. And Hunter basically has a little bit of a different uh, sort of take and a different spin, but one other thing that I think is vitally important for us to understand. He agrees that Christians are called to be those who are making the world into a better, a better place, and that the activity of the kingdom of God really is the key to the Christian life, but basically says that for American evangelicals, we haven't done very well on this. We failed at this in many ways. That's my first point up there. And what he does is he goes back and critiques the ways in which we've tried to change the culture. Now, bear with me for a second. Here we go. Number one, he says it has been a failure for Christians to rely upon evangelism. Pure interpersonal one-on-one evangelism has not been the source of cultural change because it's not touched structures. It has put the focus on human hearts, appropriately so, but it's not touched the structures in which those people operate. Secondly, some have relied upon political action. Talked about this last week a little bit with Micah. But he says, this has corrupted the church by oftentimes tying it to institutions that are mixed bags at best. There are a lot of things within the two-party system in which we live that you just can't sign off on. But the polarization of that conversation has suddenly tied the church to a lot of those things. And again, I'm not placing a value judgment on this, but anyone lower than the age of 30, had they been the only ones to vote in the last election last year, Hillary would not have lost one state had people under the age of 30. And you can look as an old person and be like, that's why these kids are nutty crazy. Okay, I might even agree with you on that, right? But that is the future. And therefore, there's going to have to be a conversation that goes on about why these things do and do not work. Hunter goes on to say some have relied upon social reform. They tried to go in and make the church an institution for social change. But he said that all that did was distort the fundamental commitments of the church. He says, finally, some have assumed that change happens democratically from the grassroots. In other words, we can just kind of go into the the smaller sort of political spheres. Then really we can change. But he says basically those claims are naive. But for Hunter, what he says is culture is nothing more than a system of truth claims 
that operate in networks of people. In other words, not only is Crouch saying that this culture is what you make of things, but he says that that influence, these ideas, they never take place purely as individuals. They operate in networks. Clumps of human ideas come to life, and when those human ideas come to life in various networks, culture is created. That's Hunter's definition. (laughs) But here's what he says. For that reason, if it really truly happens in networks, change in a culture takes a long time. It takes a long time. It happens over great stretches of time. Therefore, the instinct, Hunter says, to want to change the world is just flawed. Rather, Hunter says that what we need to be is to become a, a, a faithful presence. That's his phrase. Andy Crouch's culture-making, Hunter's uh, uh, version is to be a faithful presence. And he says this. He says, a theology of faithful presence means this. To recognize that the vocation of the church, hear this. He uses church kingdom language, thankfully. The theology of faithful presence means the recognition that the vocation of the church is to bear witness to and to be the embodiment of the coming kingdom of God. That is, he says, this is about what we here are doing. We are to be the sort of first witness to what the kingdom of God is like. And we are to bear witness to the world about what it's like to live in the kingdom. Here, in our own place, in our own time, to function in this place. And so what he means then is that we've got to spend some time focusing on the importance of incarnation. I realize there's a lot of Bible words get thrown around, and I don't want to throw that one around without sort of making sure that that gets understood. Incarnate means to put flesh on. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, we say that that was the incarnation because the second person of the Trinity did what? He took on flesh. Okay, we have chili con carne, right? Which is chili with meat, flesh in it. Carne, carnation. I, just, I want y'all to know what incarnation means because it's really important to this lesson. <laughs> Hunter basically says that that means that what we've got to be doing as the church is to incarnate ourselves among those people. Christians embody God's mission on the earth best when they come and enter into the places where sin has touched the world. And the crazy thing is, your mere presence in that place is healing to the world. When finally you get a description of the book of Revelation of the people of God as they are gathered around the throne, when you get them sort of there and, 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 and worshiping, there's a description that in the middle of the, of the city, which again is a description of the people of God, there's a tree of life. And, the, and, and, and John says of that tree that the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. And what that means then is as the people of God get together and we anticipate being that glorious bride, that great city of the new Jerusalem one day, it means that we've got to come to be the healers of the world. And what that means then is faithful presence means showing up in people's lives. Showing up in people's lives. So what does Hunter uh, end up doing? I think Hunter gets us thinking about the networks in which you live. Because what he does is he begins to challenge the networks that you live by saying, am I just going with the flow? Um, again, I told you last week, and I'll say again, that all of these notes I've got were, were, help, uh, were unpacked for us at our staff training with uh, uh, Dr. Sean Lucas, who's pastor of Independent Prez up in Memphis. And Sean spends a lot of time when he's talking about all these culture ideas about saying, are you getting aware of your blind spots? Every single attempt to be Christ in culture is going to unveil for you that you're missing something somewhere. Again, I've, I've, I've picked on a, a number of times here, but evangelicals had the right theology in the 1960s. We were on the wrong side of the civil rights actions. <laughs> on the wrong side, because we didn't realize that that needed to affect the way in which we allowed other people who did not have access to power to gain more power. Wrong in that sense. It was a blind spot. And so Hunter says that if you'll simply spend some time thinking about the networks in which you operate and the cultural products that are being produced by your clan, you'll notice that there's blind spots. And when all of a sudden those ideas get challenged, that's when stress occurs and stress go in a system. And by the way, you can think about this in in national terms. 
You can think about it in statewide terms. You can talk about it in local municipalities. Robin doesn't know anything about the stress that goes on between culture classes in Oxford, I'm sure. She's going to lecture next week. Um, but you know what else? This is really, really big. It happens in local churches too. What is the culture of Christ Presbyterian Church in Oxford, Mississippi? That's a big question. And what is implied by what we are as a culture by the artifacts that we create? <laughs> because in the next two years, we're going to build an actual artifact, a building, right? And again, I'm not being ominous about that. I'm not being Pollyannish about that. I'm just saying that that probably means that when some of the networks in which I've operated, even within this church, come in contact with other networks here, there might be a little bit of stress that goes on. There's a part of me to prepare all of us for saying, all right, wait a minute, this is what Les said was going on. I didn't know that I cared that much about carpet, but I really do. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that was in there, but it is. Wow. And learning that when that happens, we've got to stop and call a timeout and look for our own blind spots. And what that does is that creates calm in a system. And that's better for a system. It's better for a culture. Hunter gets us talking about that. Secondly, he gets us realizing that spiritual flourishing and material flourishing are both talked about in the Bible and therefore in the domain of Christian discourse. In other words, what Hunter basically says is it's okay for us to talk about what it means to be a Christian in the world. Why? Because Jesus talked about being a Christian in the world. He talked about how we should posture ourselves before. He talked about value claims. Therefore, a church has not gone political when the preacher gets up and makes applications to the world in which we live and tries himself on the basis of the declared word of God. We can argue about whether that was legit or not but on the basis of the word, makes pronouncements about what the kingdom ought to look like. It doesn't mean that they've gone liberal. It just means he's trying to apply the scripture in a faithful and patient way. Finally, and I'll finish with this, Hunter's incarnational approach puts the emphasis of ministry on showing up in people's worlds. Look, return to this picture. The, the, the dotted line around the church is the emphasis here. Because it means that this is never supposed to be an organization, this Christ Presbyterian Church in Oxford, that exists for its own sake, or for its own nurture, or for our own betterment. Now the things, the decisions you've got to make to make things comfortable, I'm all about finding comfortable chairs. <laughs> Lord, would to God that we should have better chairs um, in the new church. Um, but we're supposed to be those people that show up in those places. That's what incarnation is. Um, I still would argue that for our tendency, and I'm talking about the denomination which Christ Presbyterian Church is a part. Um, Christ Presbyterian Church is part of a denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA for short. We are a break-off of the larger mainline denomination uh, that, uh, that First Pres on the square uh, is part of, okay? the PCUSA. It gets to be alphabet soup after a while and it'll <laughs> blow your mind, so don't get too hung up on that. But the PCA is one of the faster growing of those denominational influences among sort of American evangelical Presbyterians. Over and over again, whenever sort of controversies come up, the PCA oftentimes wants to view all of those controversies through a theological lens. Well, there must be something that they're believing wrong. May I say to you that the PCA is the most theologically uniform body of Christians our size, I think that we've ever had in 2,000 years of church history. Yes, that's a little bit of overstatement. But a lot of uniformity in our world. There's a lot of things that we do the same. (laughs) But here's the deal. I don't think that divisions between us are theological. I think they're cultural. That is, we've got people that are doing ministry in different places. Different places with unique things. Let Let me get back to Keller. Even though we're going to talk about him a whole lot. You know, again, for so many people who sort of get uncomfortable with some of the things that Tim Keller talks about, they fail to recognize that he's serving in one of the most highly secular contexts you could ever imagine. Oh, Keller's gotten soft on blah, blah, blah. I don't like his view of blah, 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 blah. <laughs> He is learning to translate his particular thing into his context, which is wildly secular. And again, you're wondering, saying, well, why? well then Les, why do you talk about him so much? Because we're here in little old Oxford. Um, and you know, in little old Oxford, we got this thing called the University of Mississippi, 
where, guess what? University systems are extremely like the culture of New York. It's where those social things start in a university setting. So to sort of sort of lop him off as an influence in your world, that's why I think is irresponsible. But my point is this. It basically focuses us on learning what it means for me to step in. And I want to do this on a macro level and a micro level. I think the church has the ability to be a calming influence, even on a, even on a, on a macro scale. In, in Memphis yesterday, apparently, there were some protests that happened. Uh, apparently, there were some um, uh, nationalistic groups that were sort of meeting downtown. Um, what does it mean when people gather together to protest? In our country, we sort of set that up as a value where you have the right to protest. You have a freedom of speech. But in those particular places, what does it mean to be a Christian there? Does that mean that a Christian ought never to show up in those places? I'm not sure that's the case. Um, What does it mean, though, when our presence does show up there? Now I think what Hunter would say is we're having a far more interesting conversation than about what oftentimes is happening with the polarization. And we're just racing to both sides. What does it look like to be the church in the world? Let me give you another one. What does it look like to show up in the world of a broken family? What does it mean for us simply to say that my job is to incarnate myself in the midst of the hurt that these people are going through? Some of you have felt this. Your, my, your family was going apart. Your heart was coming to pieces. You, you, you thought, you know, you're like, no, I'm, not, I'm not crazy, but I can see it from here. You ever been to that place in your life? And you know what happened? Somebody just showed up. They just showed up. And they were there. And for some reason, the mere physical presence of that person was encouraging. It was uplifting. It, was, it kind of got you through it. And in retrospect, you don't even remember what they said, which is what we all get uh, sort of gripped by. Like, uh, I mean, I guess I could go over there, but like, I don't know what I would say. Well, who cares what you say? That's not the power of what you're going to go do. The power of what you do is the you incarnating yourself in that place. Does it mean you solve all their problems? No. Does it mean you solve any of them? No. But you are with them. The universe is heading to a place that is Emmanuel, God with us. And what that means is, is when you and I are with each other, there's healing that goes on. That's the trick. So Hunter sort of pushes us back out into incarnate ourselves among the world. One thing I don't want you to do is I don't want you to walk away feeling like you've got, you know, this is really helpful because now I've got a very clear philosophy on what it means to be the church in the world. I'm really trying to get you away from that because it's possible to have a lot of answers in your mind about what you think Christians ought to do in the world and use that as an excuse for having done ministry. But I don't think ministry is done until we've actually shown up in the lives of some sphere of influence. And look, I, gotta, I do this qualifier because I get... <laughs> Mommies of preschool-age children always come up to me and are kind of like, so what, uh, what else did you need me to do here? Um, you don't have time to show up in anybody's life except for those little urchins in your home, okay? Period. And, and, and what, what I find over and over again is mommy, mommies of preschool-age children live with a boatload of guilt. Every time I do, it's fun when I go and sort of travel and I do sermons that, have, that mention guilt or talk about guilt. I had a song, I had a um, Sermon on Psalm 51 that I used to sort of that I put on the road for a little while. Um, paid for some nice stuff in my house. Um, <laughs> but I remember that all the young mommies would kind of come walking to me and be like, oh, thank you for that. You begin to realize, like, oh, okay, this might, have, this might have scratched where you were itching a little bit. Why? Because it's burdensome. It does not mean that showing up in someone's life means showing up in someone's life that's out there. It might mean that you only have the time to show up to those. But it's all about showing up. The, the sin will want you to withdraw because it's gross and it's ugly and it's mean. And what we think is when all of a sudden I move into that place, I'll be diminished. Isn't that, what's, isn't that what is the heart of cultural, psychological, social withdrawal? Some of you are doing this in your marriages. Your marriages are hard. You've been doing this. And then, and, or, or you just got bored with each other. Who knows? And the easiest thing to do is to be like, ugh. Just walk away from it. I mean, maybe you didn't walk away actually from your marriage, but you can walk away emotionally and just quit working at it. You know, fold into the nightly news or you know, a little bit of extra work at night or whatever. Walk away from sort of complicated things. Whereas God is looking and saying, what are you afraid of? 
Now, I think what you find from sort of married people is I'm afraid that when I go there, it's going to rob me more of me. I'm going to be more diminished. But here's the thing. The only people that talk that way are poor people. Poor people are the only ones who are deathly afraid of not having the resources to be able to manage the world around them. And if all of a sudden I feel like a relationship has begun to consume me, and the only way I can deal with that is for to walk away from it, then it may mean that I've grown poor. And that the gospel is trying to create a wealth of riches inside of me. A wealth of riches that can invest and say, you know what? He owns the cattle of a thousand hills, and he loves me more than anything else. So therefore, I'm not afraid of your rejection. I'm not afraid of saying the right thing. Okay? Now, if y'all heard me say, well, Les doesn't think we should have boundaries. I should state, of course there are boundaries that wisdom has to dictate. But that has to come from a position of strength and not from a position of fear and poverty. All right. I left five minutes for questions. I thought I was going to have longer, but I, I didn't, as I want to do. Any thoughts about what Crouch and Hunter are offering? Culture-making, faithful presence. Those are the two phrases I want, you to, I want you to kind of turn over this week. Yes, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so what I want to keep you thinking about is thinking about what does it mean for me to be a member of a church and what does it mean for me to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? You're wearing two hats as a Christian. Does that make sense? There are times in which I put my church hat on and other times in which I put my kingdom hat on. Okay? That's, the, that's what I'm, I'm trying to get an idea of. The church, as she gathers, and I would argue around her marks. Have you ever heard the uh, people talk about the marks of the church? What are the marks of a church? What, what, what are the church's main tools in her tool belt? Well, from our Scottish ancestry, we have three things. We major on the word, we major on the sacraments, uh, and we, re- re- we major on church pastoring, uh, uh, entering into people's lives and bringing the word of God to bear on their lives through discipline and otherwise. Uh, word, word, sacraments, and disciplines, how we talk about that. So when the church is being the church, she lives us that way. But the church has got to be distinct from the kingdom of God. So, that she doesn't, so she doesn't suck things back up into her world and try to make pronouncements over stuff that are not her area of expertise. Now, she might have something to say very generally about it, but she has to be careful not to be too specific. And that requires us to work at it. That's what I'm trying to picture by this dotted line. Does that make sense? There's a porousness to it. I would even argue there's a little bit of a, a gray area around the church. Some people would say, well, what does the church know about running Oxford and Lafayette County? She knows nothing about that. So why should she ever speak to that? Well, is that really the case? It might be that what might be very valuable to Oxford and Lafayette County is for a church to begin the process of some kind of cultural good to make it themselves. But when it gets to a certain size, you turn it over to the people that run it themselves. Does that make sense? So there's room for us to be creative about the way in which we impact the world around us. But we've always got to remember that there's a temptation to dilute who we really are. Because what we really are is word, sacraments, and discipline. That's our, those are our main tools in our tool belt. Those other things tend to be uh, sort of different. And as we go out, what I, the, the, the reason for the circles are there to talk about showing up. I want to show up in education. Does that mean that I'm going to have the same view of education? Some of you have educated your children in a private school system. Some of you have stayed in the Oxford uh, school system. I think I would make an argument that if the church makes pronouncements about that, she's overtaken an area that's not her, that's not, that she doesn't have expertise over. You may have strong opinions about what's better and worse for people, and I think that's great. But we need to argue those things on the value of showing up in that place, not necessarily with the imprimatur of Jesus on it. It's a little bit about what college students do whenever they, whenever they really want to break up with somebody. And they really want to break up with them. They're just done with it. But they don't want to explain why. So you know what they say? I, I just really feel like the Lord is telling me that we should break up. <laughs> You've thought about how that's just, that's like the hammer. You know? <laughs> the Lord told, thus saith the Lord. We're breaking up. And, you know, the person is just done at that point. Because you're kind of like, uh, hmm. <laughs> Actually, what I used to always tell people to do, the, the, whenever the breakup E would get in my office, I would always say, look, just tell them this the next time they say that. Look at me like, oh, that is so weird. He told me we should stay together. <laughs> in other words, if you're going to start playing the Lord told me games, anybody can do, do that game, right? 
what I used to always tell people is like, the people came to my office once a semester at Ole Miss and were like, you know, the Lord just told me to come and talk to you about this, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, I'm not, not impatient with it. But I would always then kind of say, you know what? If it's okay, I'm going to work at this thing called the Bible. And as soon as I've mastered that, then I'll get to your request about what you think God is telling me to do. Um, so um, that was a little funnier in my mind than it was to you, but that's good. Um, politics, what does it mean to show up in that place, incarnating ourselves there? Economic systems being created. Uh, the arts. We're going to do a whole Sunday school on what it means to be an artist as a Christian in the weeks to come. Okay? And these are just spheres of life out here as the church kind of goes and moves in that direction. I will say this. Hunter and Crouch both. One of the things Crouch says that I didn't get a chance to mention, I'll finish with this, um, is far more what you see happening in the world is people get really nervous about changing the culture, changing the culture. It's like, that's not what's going on. The culture is changing you. That's what's happening. And our goal is not to change the world. Our goal is to look and not be corrupted by the world. And that requires us to look around and figure out exactly what these devices mean. What does this device mean? What does this car mean? What do my clothes mean? What do my clothes mean? Isn't that interesting? You you go to Presbyterian churches, and what do Presbyterian churches, what what is Kurt going to preach from today? Kurt looks like what? He looks like a lawyer or a banker. That's what Presbyterians value, right? So we dress like him. The pastor will always dress like whatever he values, right? So the highest good is going to be somebody who looks like a banker or a a lawyer. I'm not picking on Kurt's suits. Kurt is a snappily dressed, handsome man. Let's establish that. Kathy would affirm every bit of that. But there's something that's said about about my uniform, is it not? You know, we don't look at we don't look at the garbage man and be like, oh, how dare he be so arrogant to wear that you know jumper uh, as a garbage man? Who does he think he is? But again, a pastor comes in and wears a collar, a clerical collar, and I was like, oh, that feels Catholic. Well, no, it's just a uniform. He's trying to tell the world what he does. So, all of our cultural artifacts are saying something, and it's a far more interesting conversation to talk about how it's influencing us. All right, I'm out of time. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, give us grace then to think. And now we're starting to realize that this is complicated. Our world is complicated. And who, who is set to that task? Well, it may be, Lord Jesus, that you just want us to kind of start inside our own heads, asking ourselves about our personal blind spots. And then maybe we need to look at our marriage and see what culture has been created between the two of us. And then maybe we need to start inside our families. And it may be that you only call us ever to be an influence over our family. And then our neighborhoods. And then, and then maybe Oxford and Lafayette County and the state and the world. Father, we got to start with those little minutiae, which is why we believe there's something beautiful about dealing with our hearts first. So we need to know that you, um, we may not see the world change in the way in which our idolatrous hearts want to see it change. Um, but you changed us. And maybe the world can change from that sense. Could you do that maybe in all of us this morning as we worship? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.